0: Today's podcast, I'd like to look at the issue of the Second Coming of Christ. What's interesting is that throughout the history of the Church, there's been no shortage of groups who have been preoccupied with the alleged signs of the times and the return of Christ, often making predictions that Christ is going to return in this day, or that day, or this year, or that year. Even in the time of the New Testament, both the books of First and Second Thessalonians were written to address false conceptions of the Second Coming of Christ and of the end times. When it comes to the issue of the Second Coming of Christ, however... I would suggest that the focus in the New Testament is not on the timing of Jesus' return, nor even the signs that will indicate that his return is near. The New Testament is far more concerned with what Luke 18 says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That is, will we be ready? So we must ask ourselves, are we being faithful? So that if Christ were to return at this moment, that he will find us doing the work of his kingdom for which we've been assigned. You see, I think being faithful to the kingdom of God means being obedient to what Christ has called us to do until he returns, more than it means knowing the times and uh, hour in which he's about to return. The New Testament is far more concerned with the mission of God's people who are to be building God's kingdom. In fact, I would say that the New Testament is actually clear that the return of Jesus is awaiting the fulfillment of God's people and accomplishing God's mission on the earth. Once we've completed God's purpose, God's mission, then Christ will return. There's actually no indications of the increase in earthquakes, famines, wars, and false prophets. Now, I know that many of you have all these references in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, Luke 21, that you want to appeal to, and even the book of Revelation. That suggests there's going to be wars and earthquakes and all these things that are going to take place uh, prior to the return of Jesus. Well, if you've been with us for our study of the book of Revelation, you might note that that's never never stated in the book of Revelation. Wars and earthquakes and all these things are never mentioned in the book of Revelation as a sign, a a precursor, a prelude to the second coming of Christ. What seems to be the indication in the book of Revelation as a prelude to the second coming of Christ is that the nations have been converted. And in our study of the book of Revelation, we've noted that the, the nations are converted not because of plagues and earthquakes and famines and things of that nature. Instead, the nations are converted by the faithful, persevering, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. When God's people are faithful and persevering and fulfilling their mission of being a witness to the nations, and the nations have converted, then Christ returns. Never in the book of Revelation do we have this indication that there's going to be all these wars that are going to be a prelude to the sign of the second coming of Christ. What Revelation does indicate is that the faithful witness of God's people will lead to the devil's increase in his warfare warfare efforts against God's people. Yeah, there's war in the book of Revelation, but that war is Satan's war against the church, not wars in nations against nations. Now, I would contend that the New Testament does give us three indications as to why there's a delay in the return of Jesus. The first indication is that Jesus is delaying because of the conversion of the nations, as I've already mentioned. Peter himself says in the book of 2 Peter, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is also indicated in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 19-21. through 21. Earlier in the chapter, Peter had healed a man begging at the temple gate. The people come up to Peter saying, Hey, how have you done this? And Peter replies to them that it was not because of me or anything else that I have done, but because of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ that, that this man walks. Peter then turns to the people and exhorts them, Repent therefore and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from the, ancients of, from the ancient time. Acts 3, verses 19-21 Peter affirms that the repentance of the people is intended to accomplish three things. All of them are, are, are introduced by a term or a phrase in the Greek that indicates purpose. First, Peter notes that they must repent in order that your sins may be wiped away. The second purpose of their repentance is that in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, the times of refreshing are themselves characteristics of the new age. Peter is not merely offering them the opportunity to experience a personal salvation; he's exhorting them to experience the restoration that characterizes the age, of, the end of the ages. Thirdly, Peter explicitly adds to his exhortation that they should repent in order that he may send Jesus. Peter emphatically declares that the return of Christ is dependent upon the repentance of the people. That is, the reason or purpose for your repenting, Peter says, is so that he may send Jesus. We see then that one of the reasons for the delay in the return of Christ is that Christ is awaiting the repentance of the nations. Now, a second reason why the New Testament indicates that there's a delay in the return of Jesus is that God is awaiting the fullness of the suffering of God's people. This may sound strange, and it may not be even something exciting or encouraging for us. But nonetheless, the idea that the people of God must undergo a certain amount of suffering before the return of Christ is indicated throughout the New Testament, at least in several places. Most emphatically, we see this in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Uh, in Revelation 6, we see the, the the breaking of the fifth seal, and the fifth seal reveals these these souls of the those who have been martyred, those who have been killed for the cause of Christ, and they're underneath the altar of God, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood and those who dwell on the earth? How long until you come back? How long until you avenge our blood? As I said earlier, it, it's not wrong uh, to, to seek and ask for the second coming of Christ. But these martyrs are then told, in and, and Revelation chapter 6, It says there was given to each one of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Revelation 6 verse 11. That is Jesus will not return until those who have been killed for the gospel have been killed. The New Testament consistently, in fact, conveys the notion of blessings for those who are suffering, and and, and this period of time between the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is a period of time where God's people can be blessed by undergoing suffering. Paul even seems to indicate in Colossians chapter 1, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, Colossians chapter one verse twenty-four. Now, what could Paul mean when he says, "I'm filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions"? Paul seems to be indicating here something that's common amongst the, in the Jewish world of the first century, and that is this notion of the Messianic woes. The Messianic woes is this notion that God's people have this certain amount of suffering that they have to undergo until the end. And Paul's answer is, "I'm I'm finishing. I'm am filling up that which was lacking in Christ's afflictions. That the crucifixion of Christ." doesn't actually constitute the fullness of the suffering of God's people. So Paul says, "I'm taking. in fact, I'm going to bear in my body even more. I'll, I'll take more of it on me so that maybe you guys don't have to suffer quite as much. The implication, however, is that the suffering of God's people has to be completed before the kingdom of God is consummated. Finally, the New Testament also seems to indicate that the return of Christ is awaiting the holiness of God's people. The people of God must achieve some level of holiness before Christ will return. This is found in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10-12. through Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Second Peter 3, verses 10-12. through This is of really great importance now. Instead of focusing on the newspapers and the signs of the times, the New Testament actually exhorts us to live godly lives. In in fact, Peter literally seems to assert that the return of Christ is not only awaiting the holiness of God's people, but that such holiness of God's people may actually hasten the day of Christ. We can actually speed its coming, as the NIV will translate it. Now, this creates havoc for those who wish to predict the time of Christ's return. For we cannot even even attempt to measure the holiness of God's people, nor do we know how much holiness is required for Christ's return. Peter seems to be even vague on this particular point himself. The point is that Peter is exhorting the people of God to live godly lives, and that the result will be the hastening of the coming of Christ. Now, I think we can put all three of these together. The idea that the return of Christ is awaiting the conversion of the nations, the suffering of God's people, and the holiness of God's people. You see, if we put these together, what we have is this. If God's people live holy lives, the holiness of God's people includes our missional activity of being a light unto the nations. That results in the conversion of the nations, but it also results in the suffering of God's people. Because the proclamation of the gospel is offensive to some. Some will receive it, resulting in the conversion of the nations, but others will reject it, resulting in the persecution and suffering of God's people. Once that's achieved its climax, its fulfillment, in other words, God's people live holy enough lives or holy enough holy lives so that the nations are converted through our witness, but at the same time, God's people suffer a certain measure of suffering as a result of that faithful witness, then Christ returns. Well, what about the signs of of the second coming of Christ? Aren't, Aren't there clear signs and indications that Jesus tells us about that will precede his return? Let me first begin by saying it this way. When Jesus goes on to describe the signs of the times in Mark 13, Matthew 24 and 25, uh, and Luke chapter 17 and 21, he's not giving any indication at all as to the time of his return. He even states emphatically, Mark 13, 35, I don't know the time of my return. I don't know the time I'm coming back. If Jesus does not know when he is coming back, or at least he did not know at that time, the hour of his return, how could he give any indication as to when he's going to come back? And some will say, well, he doesn't know the hour of his return, but he knows the the time, the week, or the month, or the year of his return. But if we look carefully at Jesus' speech in Matthew 24, we're going to see that Jesus uses the words day, time, and hour interchangeably. Matthew 24, verse 42, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 43, uh, That if the head of the house knew at what, uh, what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. Verse 44, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour, when you do not think he will. Go on down in verse 50. The master, that slave, will, will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour which he does not know. For some to suggest, then, that Jesus did not know the hour of his return, but he knew the day, or the month, or the week, of the year, doesn't make any sense at all in the text. Jesus emphatically says, I do not know when I am coming back. So there's no way that Jesus could be giving us signs of the times. If we look carefully at Matthew 24, then, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21, we're going to see that Jesus is giving an indication to his disciples as to when Jerusalem will be destroyed. And In fact, fact, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is near. Get out of town. The fact, by the way, that Jesus was crucified, I believe, in the year 30 AD, and that Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD, exactly 40 years later, which is a biblical generation. It's a good indication, then, that Jesus was telling his disciples, hey, look, this is going to happen within a generation. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But as far as my coming is concerned, I don't know when I'm coming back. Here's what I know, though. I want you to be prepared. Jesus himself tells his disciples again in Matthew 24, verse 42, therefore be on the alert because you don't know what day your Lord is coming. And be sure of this, then, if the head of the household had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. He would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't think he will. So he goes on to discuss with his disciples that readiness and preparedness, as Luke 18 says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Being ready or prepared for Christ's return is not because we know the signs of his times that give us an indication he's about to come back. Being ready or prepared for the coming of Christ means that we've been faithful with what Christ has entrusted us to do. Now some will suggest yeah, but Christians will not be surprised at the coming of Jesus. The, the world will be surprised, but Christians won't be surprised. Think about this in terms of uh, the coming of uh, the flood at the time of Noah. Jesus uses this analogy in Matthew 24. Uh, did Noah, Was Noah surprised by the flood? No, he was prepared for the flood. He built an ark, he had everything all together, but he didn't actually know necessarily when the flood was going to come. The nations of the world were surprised by the flood. Even though Noah was building an ark, they didn't even believe in Noah so also God's people will not be surprised at the time of Christ's return in the sense that they will be unprepared. We may be surprised at the time of Christ's return in the sense that we didn't know exactly what time he was coming, but nonetheless, we were prepared for the coming of Christ because we were faithful, faithful with what Christ has called us to be faithful with, proclaiming the gospel, living godly and holy lives, and suffering for the sake of the kingdom. I hope that answers your questions regarding the second coming of Christ. If you want more information, I encourage you to pick up a copy of my book understanding the New Testament and the end times. In chapters 9 and 10, I address the issue of the second coming of Christ and Jesus' sermon in Mark chapter 13.